you would turn your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, I would, as you're turning there, add a little plug to some of the announcements. These are no good to us sitting in the back, so please take them, the VBS invitations, and give them out. <clears throat> That's for, uh, what do we say, ages... I'm drawing a blank if it's actually ages three through sixth grade or four. I think it's four through sixth grade. At the end of June, we're trying four days this year, June 27th through 30th in the morning. It's a little bit of an outback theme. Australia on the sanctity of life, kind of culminating in uh, certainly an apologetic um, theme, but culminating in the value God places on a soul. Certainly, there will be a gospel presentation. So if you know people, particularly neighbors uh, who know you, please hand these out. That's a great way to get kids to come when you're not just some stranger who they're going to send their kids to who knows where. But they know you. They know you go to church. They know you're trying to, whatever they think, make the world a better place or however it registers with them. Uh, it's a great opportunity uh, to get kids the gospel when they might not otherwise darken the door of a church. I really do think uh, of my own mom when she was a little girl and back when this was a little more common, somebody knocked on her door. She wasn't in church. Her parents weren't Christian. Somebody knocked on her door and invited her and her sister to come to, to girls and boys and girls club or something like that. And they drove her on the bus to church and she got saved as a little girl. You know, the Lord saved my dad later on in life, but uh, that really changed the course certainly of my life and of my family's life as the Lord used one person to go knock on somebody's door and give them an invitation to come to a boys and girls club. And um, the Lord can do that. And I trust he will. We don't always see the fruit of that uh, as people move and things like that, but it's a good opportunity to share the gospel. And the, the other thing I'd add is uh, next Sunday night, uh, the children's ministry focus evening. Uh, I don't even know exactly what to say. We don't do these kinds of things for our health, right? So <laughs> no, they're, they're important. And, and if you're, uh, if you're able to be with us at all, able to be with us, it, it is certainly important for uh, people who do work with the children, because there's going to be some important uh, kind of philosophy and uh, some direction of ways that we're trying to operate things we're trying to do. Um, there's a lot of ways we could do things. Uh, we're even talking about, you know, maybe you wonder sometimes, what do we do to keep the kids safe or things like that? It's going to be informative, but it's also going to be kind of orienting all of us to be on the same page. I'd encourage you to come uh, next Sunday evening as we, uh, as we review some of those procedures and philosophy and policies and things like that. My wife warned me about that, not to make it sound too much like school, but forgive me if I did. Second Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter one. I mentioned in Christian Life Hour, as I saw the opportunity coming to teach in Christian Life Hour and then preach in the morning service and again in the evening. Uh, the Lord laid it on my heart to, especially knowing that this text was next in Second Thessalonians, the Lord laid on my heart to give attention to prayer today and all three services. And that is my purpose, Second Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 1, 
we'll read the whole chapter, but our text <clears throat> is actually the final two verses, verses 11 and 12. Let's read together. 2 Thessalonians 1, starting at the beginning of the letter. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. <clears throat> Starting at the beginning of last summer, the Lord gave me an opportunity to preach through the first letter to the Thessalonians. And if you've been with us, this will be a bit of a review. But these letters are written by the Apostle Paul, first and second Thessalonians, be a strange word, these are letters written both to the same church, probably within a short period of time within one another. So he wrote the first one, and then it seems a few months later, wrote this second letter to a fledgling church in the city of Thessalonica over in uh, Asia Minor, uh, modern-day uh, Greece, Turkey area. This church was just beginning. You could call it a church plant, and they were starting off life as a church immediately facing the pressure of persecution. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, you see Paul coming and for a few weeks, preaching the gospel, establishing a church, and then a riot starts and they try to kill him. And Paul is chased out of town. And from a few cities away, Paul is writing back just days after this happened, most likely, trying to set this church up for success because they're all baby Christians. They need help and they're facing intense persecution. So in the first letter, after Paul is chased out of town, he's charting for them a course of spiritual progress in order to endure persecution. He's saying to them, and we kind of took this as the premise for the whole letter, the way to endure persecution is to continue to grow strong as a Christian. If you're a flimsy little tree, you're not going to be able to stand against them. And then soon after, and this is the occasion for his second letter, Paul heard that they were doing this. They were succeeding spiritually. And this is a great comfort to him. And you can imagine why this would be so. 
And he writes back, certainly to encourage them. You see that from the first chapter. But then in the rest of the book, <clears throat> he deals with a few topics that he's heard have come up that could be a source of rot in the roots of their tree. You see in chapter 2, verse 1, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about Christ's return. There's been a false teaching that's arisen that could be really unsettling. It has been unsettling. And he wants to tell them the truth and how to deal with it. And then in chapter 3, he deals with another one. If you look in chapter 3, verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. There's a hint of this in his first letter, but it's come to full bloom now, or it's starting to bloom here in the church, that someone was not working. They weren't holding down a job. They were being a busybody instead. And Saul, Paul is pointing to his example saying, I worked hard when I was there as an example to you to show you, you work for what you eat. And if you're associating with this person who will not work, you need to stop so that he gets the picture. He's addressing just problems that come up in a church. And I think you could say the theme of this letter is that a church glorifies God as it overcomes sin's challenges by God's grace. It's the whole letter. Think about the challenges they're facing. Persecution. Pressure from people who live in their city who formerly beat someone in their church and extorted money from him. Jason. There's pressure. There's a problem. There's false teaching that's unsettling people, making them think, has Christ returned? Did I get left here? And there's someone who's unruly. There are problems. Churches have problems, don't they? People have problems. It's part of living among people. But Paul is saying in this letter, a church glorifies God in a way really that God intends as it overcomes sin's challenges by his grace. So as he opens this letter here, he, he states to them the truth as he's dealing with this first problem of their, their persecution. He's stating the truth that God uses saints who endure persecution to teach other people things. We saw that in the first chapter, and that was the, the substance of the sermon that we, a few weeks ago, if you were with us. God teaches people things as people observe Christians enduring persecution, not just experiencing, but succeeding in it. That teaches believers things, that teaches unbelievers things, that teaches unbelievers that Christ is coming for his people, and you need to believe the gospel. God's using people who are being persecuted. God wants unbelievers and believers alike to learn things that they're only going to learn as they observe Christians being persecuted. But Paul, he, he's just grateful for their stability their success spiritually, and he's writing to this effect. But as he writes to encourage, and he says, we thank God for you. He's also writing now in verse 11, telling them, we also pray for you. Not only are we just rejoicing, we're actually still interceding with God for you. And as he prays, he has a very definite goal in his mind. And if you'll bear with me, this is a bit of an extended introduction, but I want to help us understand very clearly as we get into the as we get into the body of the sermon what Paul's definite goal is he's telling them how he's praying for them he's thanking God but he's also interceding with God for them 
But what does he say in verse 12? What's his goal? What is the target he's aimed at in his prayer? So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. That's his target. The truth here of this prayer is that Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus and are glorified in him. The title of the sermon this morning is God's Glory Through Persecuted Praying Saints. Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus and are glorified in him. And I really want us to set our minds on this because this is the target he's aiming at and everything he's saying is about this. So how does this how is this relevant for us? Maybe you're saying I don't really face persecution. Why are we talking about this today? Well, even if you're not right now experiencing persecution, it's relevant because this has to do with how you feel about persecution, doesn't it? It talks, it really has to do with your attitude towards suffering. That's really what it's about for these people who are in the middle of it. Often, when we think about persecution, when we think about it, we think, I don't want that. We just don't want it. We would certainly never invite it. Maybe you fear it. Perhaps you do things to avoid persecution, closing your mouth, not exposing darkness for what it is, failing to speak for Christ in fear. This really does come very near to us, much nearer than we might think. And we're all prone to feel this way about persecution. It's, it's human. We don't want this naturally. It takes something supernatural to help us run towards the danger, doesn't it? Not that we would invite it. But this truth here in this prayer really turns all of that on its head. Gives us something else to think about. So keep bearing with me. What do I mean when I say Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus and are glorified in him? I just want to be very clear about this. How do saints glorify Jesus as they endure persecution? Maybe this is a little bit more clear to you. I think a good illustration of this is Job. Job. If you are familiar with the story of Job, the book opens with this scene where the accuser comes into God's presence. And what is he doing? He's accusing. He's slandering. He's saying, look at that rich guy over there. God, you bought him off. God, you can't get people to worship you if you don't pay them handsomely. What is he saying about God? God, you're corrupt. God, you're not everything that you say you are. He's not saying all these things explicitly. He's implying them. He's slandering God. He's slandering Job. He says, if you take all that away, Job's a fraud. He just loves you because you paid him. You see all that? That's what Satan is saying. And what happens? Job suffers. God allows Satan to take all the wealth, all the family, even his health. And it's devastating. Job suffers. Job struggles a little bit. He talks with his friends. He does end up sinning a little bit. He kind of charges God. He implies things about God. But you really feel for him. He's a righteous man, and he does better than most of us would. But in the end, you know what? You never hear from the devil again. You know why that is? Because his question was answered. God was cleared. It wasn't really just all about Job. It was about God. And in the end... After everything was taken away from Job, 
And Job clung to his faith as tightly as he could, and God hung on to him. You know what the whole world saw and all the demons and angels? God really is worth all that. God doesn't have to pay people. God is that good. Job glorified God as he endured persecution. That's a good example of what that is. But the other one makes maybe a little bit less sense to us. How are the saints glorified in Jesus? And understand this, I think you could look at the 12 apostles, starting with Peter and John in the book of Acts. Persecution really comes against the church pretty intensely, doesn't it? The religious leaders, they started this rumor that Jesus' body had been stolen, that he was still dead. The apostles saw him with their eyes, their eyewitnesses. They know they're running around with their hair on fire because the whole world needs to know that this guy beat death. He is the Messiah. Everybody needs to believe him, and nobody can shut him up, right? And the religious leaders, they're pulling their hair out because they can't get him to be quiet. And they're bringing him in and threatening him and saying, don't do this. And they go out and they preach. And they bring him in and they beat him and they say, close your mouth. And they go out and they preach. And what do they do every time? They go out and they're rejoicing. They're so thrilled to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And these religious leaders are looking at them and saying, we don't know what to say. We can tell that these men have been with Jesus. What's happening in the minds of these people? These men are being exalted. They're being glorified with Jesus. As Jesus is being exalted, these men are being honored in the minds of unbelievers, even though they hate it. Jesus himself is honoring these men before all, certainly when he welcomes them into heaven, but even now in life, they're being considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Shame brings honor. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This is what I mean when I say Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus and are glorified in him. Now, as we get to the text, notice how Paul develops this. As we have this in our minds, what he means, I believe this morning we should acknowledge three realities about this. I think that's what's evident here in the text, starting in verse 11. Notice first that this reality is cause for urgent prayer in persecution. This is really what we, if this is true, if Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus and are glorified in him, we really need to pray about this. It's really important. If we persevere under trial, when we do that, we glorify our Savior and are glorified in him. The first thing we need to do is pray urgently. And urgent prayer is specific. Paul says, to this end, also, we pray for you always. To this end, with this specific goal in mind, we pray for you, you, that church in Thessalonica. We pray also, he says, not just thanking God for you. It's not just, we don't just have good feelings about all this. We know it's still urgent. We're interceding for you in this because it's important. He's being specific here about them about a goal that he has in mind. And he's doing it, as we'll see always. But first, when when we see God's grace in a hard time, as Paul is towards these Thessalonians, he's he's seeing them grow. He's seeing God really did save them. Their, their, Their faith is strong. They're loving each other. That's God's grace in their life. And he's rejoicing over that. When you see that, we should learn not just to take that for granted and just to say, wow, that's awesome. Do, do, do. 
No. Wow, that's awesome. Lord, keep doing it. Keep going. Keep helping them. We need to keep asking God for grace. That's part of what he shows us in persecution, isn't it? That we need him. Not only just to get over that one hump, but to get over all the humps, all the challenges that keep coming, the waves of difficulty. You lose another relationship. It's disheartening. Lord, please help me. Please give me grace. We need to keep coming back to God. We need to pray specifically. You lose another business contact. You get rejected again. A glimpse of God's grace should really lead you to more prayer. I think that's what Paul is giving them an example of here. He's thankful for all the grace, but he's praying for more. And what are the specific goals he's aiming at? It's endurance. Lord, help them stay steady under all of this pressure that's trying to snap them. The devil would love to undo them. He's the enemy of their soul. Lord, keep them from sin. Keep them unified as a church. Help them to trust each other. Help them to serve each other. Help them to provide for each other. He's asking God for growth for them. He's asking that they would honor God by what they do and say. He's asking God that they would obey God, that they would have boldness with the gospel. He's praying specifically, urgently, but not just specifically, but persistently. Urgent prayer is persistent. To this end also, we pray for you always, he says. It's really just his habit. You see this all throughout the New Testament. When God brought him to a church, they made his prayer list, and he never, he never lost that prayer list, did he? He prayed for them. He took them to the throne of grace, and he interceded. Paul really is a picture of watchfulness. This is an image in the Old Testament that God calls the religious leaders of Israel to, is to watch. Ezekiel is full of this imagery. There are watchmen on the city walls looking out for the approaching enemy. And what is the watchman's job? He needs to call out when there's danger. This is Paul watching out for their souls. He knows the challenge isn't done just because they've started growing. He, needs, he knows they need help still, and they need God's help. Paul's not so much talking about his own prayer, but talking about the fact that he's in the throne room all the time for them, asking God for grace for them. It's about God's grace. I think as we apply this to ourselves, we certainly should understand you are your brother's keeper. Isn't that what Cain asked? Kind of famous, am I my brother's keeper? Where is Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? Yes. In the church, certainly you are. This is, if not God's design, although it is, this is certainly part of what we've covenanted to do together is to watch for one another as a church family. So yes, pray for yourself in persecution. If you experience this or if you fear this, take that, take your fears, take your experiences to God, but pray for others too. And believe God really is moved by prayer. This can creep into our minds, can it, that that God doesn't really do anything with my prayer. God isn't moved by my prayer. It doesn't really matter. Those are lies. That is not the teaching of scripture. That's not the experience of Christians for all of world history. God can do this. God can sustain his people. And he does do it as they pray. The ultimate 
combination of these things is it, it eludes us. It's a mystery how God can be moved by the prayers of his people, but he calls us to do it. And we see everywhere the example of it being done. But that really does kind of presuppose, doesn't it? That we care about God's glory through ourselves and through our brothers and sisters. In our society, it's much less, it's much easier to think in terms of self than it is of the whole group, right? This is just kind of part of the nature of the, the, the part of the world that we're in. But this really, what, what Paul is saying, what I am saying is this is a way of thinking about other people that says, I care that my brother and sister glorifies God, that God is glorified, not just through me, but through them too. Is that the way that you think about our, our church here? I believe that is the, the way of thinking that the Bible would give to us and tell us to think. If we would really watch out for one another so that we would be certain and, and vigilant that God is being honored through each person's life. Not that we're busybodies, but that we care and that we love. Because this is God's call on us. This is his right, his claim on our lives. And we should be zealous for the glory of his name. Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus and are, are glorified in him. And we really, that calls us to urgent prayer for people to endure. But what exactly should we pray for with such urgency? When, when Christians endure and God's glory abounds, notice how it happens. Second, in the second half of the verse. We pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. I believe this is what we should pray for because this is how Jesus is honored in us and we in him. And there are some things to untie here that I think we, we, we need to set our minds on carefully. And I'm going to summarize this first statement that Paul makes, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. I'm going to summarize it this way, that Jesus is glorified when God produces in you the kind of life he approves of. Jesus is honored when God produces in you the kind of life he approves of. So Paul says, I pray that God would count you worthy of your calling. That's actually different than what he says elsewhere. And we're going to look at this. When Paul prays and writes in the Ephesians, I pray that, or I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Those are different, but I believe only in perspective, okay? Because here he says that God would count you worthy. This is an evaluation term. This is a term of worth and of estimation and of value. Uh, in just a, a few weeks, I believe on June 6th, maybe you've seen this in, in the news, the show Antiques Roadshow. Have you heard of this on TV? Antiques Roadshow is going to be filming at Stan Hewitt in just a few weeks. It's coming to Akron. Woo! Okay. As I was uh, reading stories of famous appraisals over the history of the show, one woman brought in an eyewitness account of events written by a man who had gone to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on the evening of April 14, 1865. Okay, a famous night in American history. The man who wrote this account was the grandfather of a woman, of the woman who brought the letter in to the Antique Roadshow. 
And that man went to that theater that fateful evening, not for the play that was going on, Our American Cousin, not actually even for the president, but because he had heard that the famed Union General Ulysses S. Grant would be there. And of course, what he witnessed instead was one of the most memorable moments in American history when President Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, was shot and later died by uh, Southern sympathizer, Confederate sympathizer, John Wilkes Booth. He added some interesting accounts, details to the account of that assassination. But the point here, that letter, when she brought it in, her grandfather had written it as an eyewitness account of that day, uh, 150 years ago, whatever. That was valued at ten to $15,000. And that's what the show consists of, is people bringing things in. Is this worth anything? That's a lot of money. $10,000 for an eyewitness account of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. This word here, count worthy, is that kind of evaluation term. This is used in scripture a few times. A man came to Jesus, sent a servant to Jesus, and he said, I am not worthy to come to you. I'm not, I'm not good enough to come to you. I don't deserve to be in your presence, he said. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Consider uh, the elders who work hard at preaching and teaching worthy of a double honor, is Paul's instruction to Timothy. They, they, they deserve it. They're worth it. Hebrews 3. Jesus, when he's being compared with Moses, Moses received a good amount of glory, but Jesus is worthy of greater glory than Moses because of this and this and this. As much more glory than the house, than the builder of the house receives than the house itself. That's what the writer of Hebrews says there. There's evaluation, and then there's a decision about who deserves what. So that gives us an issue, right? Does God look at us and say, wow, that guy really deserves to be saved. Is that what God does? No. We can't live or do or say anything in a way that warrants God's call. We're enemies. We're enslaved to sin. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Scripture is very clear about that. Nor does God call because he knows that you'll accept it. Okay, I know I'm a sinner, but God called me because he knew that I would except Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's certainly not the teaching of this passage. I do believe that this is simply the other perspective of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. God places a high and holy calling on a person, calling them out of darkness into light, to live a holy life, zealous for good works. And Paul here is placing the responsibility on the church to say, walk in a manner worthy of that. You didn't deserve it. You can't deserve it, but live in a way that rises up to that and lives in a way that is worthy of that calling, that speaks well of that calling. Here, Paul takes God's perspective. And I believe he's saying, he's praying that God would help them live in a way that he approves of and about which he would say, Yes, his life shows that he's in Christ, worthy of the kingdom, not because of him. He's praying that God would count them worthy of that calling that he placed on his life. There is the gospel call that comes through a man, comes through men, 
And God calls men, we say effectually, God calls men effectively by his power out of darkness into light. And I would extend that call to you, the call of the gospel to turn from your sin and believe in Christ today. He who believes the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You must obey the call of the gospel that is spoken here today in your hearing, that is often spoken in this church, but that when God calls you in your heart out of darkness into light, Paul is asking that God would count these believers worthy of that call. That he would look at their lives and say, yes, I have placed my call on them. He's in Christ. When your life is marked by likeness to Jesus, that's God's work. And that pleases Jesus. So is that you? Do people look at your life and say, wow, God's definitely done something in him. She's different than she used to be. Does God look at your life and say, yes, in Christ? I believe this is part of what it means to make your calling and election sure. You can't work for your salvation. You can't keep your salvation. You can't earn it. You can't make God pleased with you. But you need to be convinced. You need to be sure about where you stand with God. And the the certainty doesn't ultimately lie in you, but some of the evidence, you have to look at your own life and see, is there evidence there? Is there fruit that the Spirit is working in me? Of course, the certainty ultimately lies in the fact that God says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's where our certainty lies. God will never break his word. But we can't waffle about this. The eternal condition of your soul is nothing to trifle about. It's too significant. You need to be sure. So are you a Christian? And does your life demonstrate that? So what I'm saying is I'm interpreting this. Paul is praying for a life that God approves of because that glorifies Jesus. But also, this this. Uh, honor to Christ's name being realized through spiritual fruit and persecution, not only a life that God approves of, but Jesus is glorified when God brings that fruit to full bloom. This is a wonderful statement here. Not only that our God will count you worthy of your calling, but also that he would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So Paul is praying here for the glory of Christ that God would do something in these people, that he would bring something to full expression. What is it? Well, it's two things. That God would fulfill every desire for goodness. That's the first one. And that that by his power, he would fulfill the work of faith. So what are we talking about? That God would fulfill this. Well, when you have a good meal and you sit back and you sigh and you say, Wow, I'm satisfied. Okay. Your desire for food is fulfilled, right? That's what we're talking about. Of course, literally, your stomach is probably filled up, but you know, that desire for food is filled. Likewise, Paul here identifies in Christians 
a healthy appetite for doing good in persecution. And he asked God that he would fill that desire to the brim. So what desires for good would Paul be speaking of? Well, just imagine. Maybe these people had a desire to bless those who were persecuting them. Is that a good desire? Is that a natural desire? Of course not. Maybe they had a desire to be generous when they're being oppressed and afflicted financially, and they're just trying to give so that other people have to live on. They want to be generous. Is that a good desire? Of course it is. Maybe they want to maintain relationships for the gospel witness. Is that a good desire? Yes, it is. Maybe they want to have a sweet and gracious spirit before their skeptics and before their accusers. Is that a good desire? Yes. And that's no doubt the kinds of desires they had that were being produced in them by God. And Paul is praying, Lord, fill those up. Satisfy those desires for your honor. Do you have good desires for things that God says are really good? Those are the kinds of desires that God loves to fulfill. Psalm 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God gives desires and God gives good desires. And if you see a desire for goodness in you, that's from God. Ask that God will fulfill that desire. Because sometimes we have a desire, but we don't act on it in the weakness of our flesh. Do you delight in the Lord? Is the Lord giving you good desires? Ask that he would bring them to full bloom. But what are the works of faith Paul might have in mind? Or the, the Thessalonians might be thinking of. When Paul prays, God fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith by your power. What might they think of? Well, do you think they had... They wanted to work, do a work of faith by speaking boldly for Christ or to sacrifice financially to provide for others or to visit those who are imprisoned for the gospel. You know, there's not a good prison system over there at this time. It's just whoever provides for you, provides for you. And they're identifying themselves with God's people and who are being put in prison and sustaining them. But that really stigmatizes you, doesn't it? It takes faith to do that. Maybe to keep showing up to love someone who's rejected you many times. Maybe like the prophet Daniel, who prayed with his window open and was not intimidated by those who persecuted him. Maybe they were just trying to live their Christian life without changing a bit. That takes faith to do when people are maybe trying to beat you for it, maybe trying to get you in trouble with the law for it. It takes faith. Those are good desires. Those are noble works of faith. But when persecution is arising against those things, it's, it's hard to keep those desires alive and to keep acting on them. You need God's help. And that's why Paul is praying for it. Because it's worth it. It's worth it to pursue those things and to see them come to bud. I've got a rose bush in my backyard and I've got one beautiful crimson red rose that's, uh, that's bloomed down there. And there's tons of little buds on there. I'm excited for when it comes... And they all start to bloom because that's going to be a beautiful bush. But there's, there's expectation right there. And it's a real shame, isn't it? When you see him die when they're in the bud. This is what Paul is talking about, that God would bring him to full bloom. This is the kind of life that you can live by the power of God. Having a desire for goodness and acting on it in faith. Jesus is glorified when God works in you that way. 
Have you ever been convinced that you needed to take some step of faith? Whatever that would be, give in a certain way, volunteer for a certain thing, speak up in a certain way, and you, you just kind of felt yourself holding back? Do you think God can, can help you overcome that? And to act on that desire and to increase that godly desire? Of course he can. Of course he can. So pray, pray. God does this by the prayer of his people. And this really, I think, also kind of sets for us priorities in prayer, doesn't it? What do I pray about? What's God's will? This, this, is, this is something that you can make a matter of prayer and that God would be delighted to answer. Look for the answers and then praise him for it, like Paul's doing here. Paul's prayed to this end. He's seeing a result. He's thanking God for it, and he's praying for it again. What a beautiful cycle. Christians who endure persecution glorify Jesus, and they are glorified in him. And that happens, as we've seen, as God produces spiritual fruit in his people. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's wonderful. Why did God make it work in such a wonderful way? I think Paul gives the answer. Notice third, that when Jesus is honored and he honors his saints, it's really third and finally due to the manifold grace of God in persecution. You see his target there at the beginning of verse 12. He wants all this so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's grace. That's why this happens. That's why it is this way. If we think of this image of a big, strong tree growing strong to, to stand against the winds of persecution, maybe the winds of false doctrine, why does it get to be such a pretty tree? Because God is gracious. That's the answer Paul gives. It's according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, all of this glory is abounding. Glory for Jesus. The saints are glorified with him. Glory abounds because that's been God's gracious plan all, the, all along. It's according to the grace of our God. In other words, I think you could say here, this happens because God graciously planned for it to happen that way. What do I mean by that? Well, what does Paul mean when he says God planned for his son to be glorified in the saints and for saints to be glorified in him? I think you can look at a passage like Ephesians 1. When Paul is praising God that he is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has chosen us who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that's a long time ago, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved you go all the way back to the beginning of time, not before the foundation of the world, we can't see that far, but in Genesis, when God created everything very good and in innocence and full of his glory, and there's fellowship, unhindered fellowship between God and men, it's lost at the fall. And what does God say? He curses the ground because of Adam. 
there's pain in childbirth. God curses the snake and he says, there will be enmity between you and her seed. And you will strike him on the heel and he will strike you on the head. That's the, the, the first announcement of this plan of redemption. I'm coming back for him. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to fix it all right. And that's the whole story of the whole Bible. Is God doing that? He chooses a people and calls them out. He promises them a new heart. And then he sends his son who does that. He secures it for them. He's the perfect sacrifice. Once for all men in whom we must believe so that we can be right with God. That was the plan then. It's the plan now. It's going to be the plan if God tarries many years after we die. You see it in the golden chain that Paul records in Romans chapter 8. You see almost like flashes throughout the history of the world, flashes of redemption. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, there's an indication of a plan. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the first mortal among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Once paradise was lost, God set out to redeem fallen people and restore them back to the former glory they had when they were with him. And he does this through Christ. He didn't have to do that. We were rebels. We were enemies. We were dead. How many of us would have just, we had that kind of power, chalked it up to a lost cause and started over. Things were messed up that badly. God did this. No, he did it in mercy and in pity for the sinful and in grace towards the undeserving to magnify the great glory of who he is to the praise of the glory of his grace. So praise God for that. Note that. Credit him for it. He's gracious. If saints who endure glorify Jesus and are glorified in him, that's just part of what God planned. But Paul says both here. I don't think he's intending a distinction necessarily, but he does say that it's according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory abounds because God's graciously planned it that way, but glory abounds because Jesus made it possible at Calvary. We've indicated this, but Jesus is glorified in the saints and the saints in him because Jesus is the one who made them saints. He's the one who graciously condescended to earth as a man, humbled himself beyond imagination, even to, to serve and die on a cross in place of death-deserving sinners like you and me. Jesus used some interesting language as it's recorded in John's gospel, talking about what kind of death he was going to die. And he used the phrase, when he is lifted up. But he said this interesting statement, when you see the Son of Man lifted up in his glory, he will draw all men to himself. And he, he talks in a different way later. But when Jesus is exalted from the earth, certainly he's talking about his exaltation to heaven, but there seems to be a hint that he's even talking about his exaltation on the cross. This is the glory of the Savior to die on a cross 
where love and justice meet. God's justice is satisfied in him so that he can be just and the justifier. He punished sin in Christ on the cross so that he could now forgive you for your sins in Christ. So glory, if Jesus' name is glorified in an abounding way from your life, and if you're being exalted in Jesus, it's because he made it possible by his grace. So I would reiterate that call. Have you believed in Jesus for salvation from your sin and God's judgment? You must, you must. There's no other way. This is the authoritative word of God. It demands to be believed. It's an offer of grace. It's, an, a, a, it's a gift, but you, you must obey. You can't be indifferent. You can't say that God is, God is good with me and I'm good with God and brush him off. You will meet him. doesn't matter what you think. There have been men for ages who have tried to ignore the word of God, but when they died, they met the, their maker. God intends to receive glory through his people. Jesus is Lord, and he's worthy of being represented as the Lord of the universe. So does Jesus receive glory from your life, Christian? If you're not a Christian, the way that begins is as you call on the name of the Lord to be saved. really is a joy to know that God uses Christians who are persecuted to teach people important lessons about himself and about their need to be right with him. That's what, what's going on in the first part of this chapter. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. It's just for God to repay those who afflict you with affliction. They're being put in mind that there is judgment coming. It's a blessing to know that God uses us that way that God uses just the testimony of our lives to show that people need to be right with God. But that can be a bit frightening to think in those terms, can it? What if God wants to use you that way? Maybe you'd say, I don't want to have to suffer for Christ. Perhaps you know what it's like not to speak for Christ because of fear. Here, Paul really turns that on its head. When he drives home this truth, that this is God's plan. This is the way that it has to be, and it's good. Uh, the apostles often said, Paul often said, right after he got stoned, nearly to death, it is through much affliction that we must enter the kingdom of God. And it's a good plan. Christians who endure persecution, they're not just tools that God uses and then discards. When you endure persecution, you glorify Jesus before men and before angels, and you are glorified in him before the same. That is the road to glory. You shy away from persecution. Remember, because this is the way that God planned for Jesus to be honored. We should pray about this earnestly. It's not a small task to undergo persecution and to endure it. It's not something to be entered into lightly. This is part of the cost that we have to count. Maybe in our country, we haven't had to count it on the front end. 
But this is something we should think about. This is part of the cost of being a disciple. So we should pray. But God will help us when we pray. And the way that he will help us is by producing fruit in us that honors him. And all of that really is just due to God's grace. It's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? That God would be gracious to allow us to undergo persecution. When we realize that this is likeness to our Savior, that's the greatest honor, isn't it? Before glory comes the grave. To live, we must die. The the greatest in the kingdom are the humblest. To keep your life, you must lose it. To be honored, you must suffer. These These are the paradoxes of the Christian life. It really is a demonstration of the truth that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Persecution is bounding, but grace is super abounding. This is all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of this passage that when we endure times of affliction and persecution, you are honored, Lord Jesus, and we are glorified in you. It's really almost an unspeakable glory that this would be true, but your word says it, and we take it by faith. Help us not to fear. Help us to trust and help us to obey. Whatever may come, because persecution may come as we obey. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, you said. Help us to live in a way that, Lord, we would never ask for it, but uh, we know that this is your plan. Help us to trust you. And help us to be dependent. As Paul prays, certainly a man of great faith, a man who endured much persecution. There have been many saints who have endured the same throughout church history. Lord, give us faith to pray and to seek you in this way because we need your help. We feel our weakness and our frailty. We ask for your strength and grace to face whatever you send us. We know that you are a good shepherd and you will lead us all the way. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.